didn't end and stuff. That is, no, it's a bummer because the Chargers have to play a football game right now because of it. And I know some of you would argue, well, the, the, the Chargers haven't been playing football the last few weeks anyway. Ha, 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 ha. Very glad you're here. We're thrilled uh, that God has given us this day. Uh, Merry Christmas. And uh, how many of you are coming back to a service today? One of the four or the six? Wow. Extra points in heaven. Yeah. Good for you. I'm glad that you're here. There was like 30 people at the last service, so I'm, I'm actually thrilled that there's, there's 300 at this one. That's great. Um, uh, if you came in and you didn't get notes, we'd love to give them to you. Um, if you just raise your hand, we'll bring them to you. Um, and if you've got your Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to work through one of the more familiar passages in the New Testament today. Um, and then next weekend, uh, Pastor Todd will close us out. We will have covered all of Scripture Next weekend, he's uh, covering a passage in Revelation, I think uh, maybe 19, maybe it's 20 actually. Uh, some have called the passage MMA Jesus because it's the one where he comes back and he's got a tattoo on his thigh and he's got a sword and he's, he's all MMA'd out. Anyway, never mind. That was stupid. I shouldn't have even said that. Uh, very glad that you are with us today. Um, we'll be in uh, Hebrews 11. We're going to read a few of the verses. Normally, I like to read just the whole passage because then at least when I go home discouraged by the stupid things I said, at least I just read Bible. But this weekend, the passage is very long, and there are a number of things that we'd actually like to say about it, and we'd also like to finish our, our service um, condensedly so that we can all get home, eat, and then come right back. So what we'll do this weekend is actually I'll give you some of the thoughts about the passage, and we'll just dip in and out of it. Um, so sorry about that, uh, but the first thing I need you to write down right now is faith is evidence, okay? And I'll say something about our culture, and then I'll read you a scripture. Um, our culture is very argumentative. News broadcasts used to just report stories, but now they'll briefly report a story, and then they'll go to their panel. Three people, five people, seven people arguing back and forth about the story. Um, sports talk used to just tell you, who's going to play and who's injured and if Robert Griffin's going to start today or not. But now it's a little bit of information and then a panel. They'll have people call in from around the country and argue about it. We're a very argumentative culture. And Pastor Tom last week did a great job explaining that we don't enter in and argue people to Jesus. We don't tell them they're stupid and they're going to hell and we're smarter because then we just get lost in the noise of our culture. But Tom last week taught us through the fact that actually our unity the fact that we stick together is different than our culture. And it's one of the ways that we honor Christ as a church family. But then it's easy to say, okay, well, then they know that we're different. But Tim, what do we give? What do we provide? How do we re-engage with an unbelieving culture? And Scripture says that faith is an evidence. It's something that we bring now to the world around us. And it's, it's one of the things that they can argue over if they want to. But it's something we can tangibly give. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, 
It gives a very brief definition of faith. And for as much as the Bible talks about faith, there are very few places where it defines faith. As a matter of fact, this entire chapter is described as a chapter on faith. This is it. This will be the only definition given in the entire chapter. So pay attention because here it goes. Verse 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. Those are the two phrases given. That's how the Bible defines faith. Two phrases. First is this. It says it is a confidence in what we hope for. Now that's interesting because in the Bible, the words confidence and hope are actually a lot closer to being synonymous than they are in our culture. In our culture, confident and hopeful, not synonymous. We're confident about things that we know are true and we're hopeful for things we think probably won't happen. So... Rewind the clock. One year ago, uh, Super Lotto, Mega Lotto, Giga Lotto, I don't remember which one was over $500 million. Remember that? And a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of you bought tickets to that particular lot. I did. I bought one. <laughs> and uh, um, because the Lord could bless and then we could tithe off of it and plant more churches. Duh, God. That's why we did it. And uh, <laughs> I need to get back. So, okay, a lot of us, you, had tickets, and the tickets in your hand, and a lot of people, 100 million people in our country were hopeful that they would win $500 million. But, I, you know, give our country credit, even though we all gave away 500 of our, million of our own money, um, not a lot of people quit their jobs, bought a new car, you know, hopped on the internet and found a house that wasn't in the desert based on a ticket they bought. Because for us, that's hope. Like, oh, I hope I win, but let's be honest, we all know we won't. Okay, that's how we define hope. Confidence, completely different. And so let's now say that that ticket you hold in your hands, you see your numbers, and you've got a friend that works for the Lotto Bureau. And the friend couldn't rig it so that they changed the numbers to your numbers. It's just that he got the numbers early and shot you a text. Hey, bro, know you bought one. Um, good luck. Here's the numbers. And you read the numbers and you see your ticket and you see your ticket and you read the numbers. And all of a sudden you start to freak out a little bit because it's a match. And so you text back your friend because you trust your friend, but maybe the phone or maybe the text or something you just, you wanted to check. And so you said, hey, wait, what were those numbers again? And they shoot back and it's a match again. And now what you held in your hand looked good. It was hopeful. It sounded great that God loves me. And sure you bet, okay, God would forgive everything about me. Oh, okay, God has a plan for me forever. And even though I'm in the middle of a mess now, he will remove me from the mess and for eternity keep me safe. That sounds great. But there's a disconnect between what I see here and the fact that I don't actually have confidence that, that what he tells me about this is actually true. But we, as a people of faith, don't just hope that this is it. The Bible says faith is a confidence in the thing you hope for. And so it's the ticket in your hand and confidence that because you trust this person, they've told you that what you hold is a winning ticket, you trust them. And your trust in them now changes this little ticket that's in your ashtray or on your kitchen counter or crammed into your wallet. It changes that into now a new life. And your confidence really honestly in the person, even more than the ticket, is what changes your perception about it. And the Bible says that faith is a confidence in what we hope for. 
And a lot of us have decided we trust him. Not even necessarily, and not to discredit myself or Todd or Tom, but we just stand here and we just wave the ticket around. I'm not the one you need to have confidence in at all. I'm, I'm a shaky bag of mess if you want to be real about who I am. But we've decided as a people of faith that God's character, his abilities, his strength, his knowledge, his love are now trustworthy. And the Bible says belief, faith is now a demonstrated confidence in that. And so really, honestly, that confidence should dictate and determine a number of things about our lives. But we'll get to that in a moment. There's a second phrase that says, faith is confidence in what we hope for. Faith is assurance about what we don't see. You see, that makes no sense. It's not just different ideas. They're contradictory ideas there. We do not have confidence if we do not see. What we see drives everything in our life. As a matter of fact, it drives what we drive and how we drive and where we drive. It drives what we buy. It it drives who we spend time with. What we see affects almost every decision we make. There is a fighter named Manny Pacquiao, and he's he's actually widely considered to be one of the, the best fighters fighting right now. And I know some people in here don't like boxing, and that's okay. But Manny Pacquiao is really good and stuff. And a couple weeks ago, he was in a boxing match with another pretty competent fighter, a pretty good guy. And it was fascinating how the fight ended because Manny Pacquiao took a punch square to the face, okay, like directly to the center of his face. And for a good fighter, good fighters don't get hit square in the face because the face is the eye, like you see everything that comes in your face. Even if you're slow and you can't see a punch coming here or here or being attacked from behind, you always see what hits you in the face. But it sure looked like Manny didn't see this punch hit him square in the face. And it feels dangerous to us sometimes when God challenges us to believe him for something we can't see why or what. It feels like we're going to get punched square in the face. And we're like, God, I saw what happened to Manny. He wound up on on the mat, flat out. God, I'm not so sure that I can step into this thing you've asked me for. And it's interesting because the Bible says it is an assurance about things we don't see. It doesn't even say, hey, if you believe God magically, you'll see all the reasonings he's got behind things. We, we try and comfort each other with the idea, hey, you know, God someday will reveal to you why this happened. Eh? Maybe not. You might live your entire life not knowing why or what God had in mind. And the Bible says, yep, that's faith. It's an assurance of things you can't see. And so it's confidence in things we hope for, it's a confidence. And it's an assurance in things that we can't even see. That's what faith is. It is described as a commodity. It is something you possess. It is a noun. I have faith. And a lot of people say, well, Tim, I'm glad you have faith. I'm not a person of faith. Well, none of us are people of faith. We we acquire it. We build it. Belief builds faith. And we'll get there in a moment because I need you to write down a second thing. I want you to write down faith is mandatory. Verse 1 is the definition, and there's an awful lot of illustrations of faith in this chapter. But verse 6 makes a statement about faith. And it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Now, that seems almost redundant. Well, if you come to God, you've got to believe he exists. That's a no-dust statement. Well, no, it's not, actually. You know people in your world, and you might even remember a time in your life where belief in God was a struggle. It was, it was a moment in time where it's like, eh, I want to believe, but I don't. It's, it's an act of the will, the mind, the emotions. All three work in concert together, and you decide that you will go beyond your knowledge, and you will trust something that you do not see, you do not understand, you do not know. And I know that this is a cheesy way to illustrate it, but guys, honestly, the last Indiana Jones movie did one of the best jobs of articulating this idea really better than anywhere. Now, I don't mean the last Indiana Jones where he looked for aliens and hid in a refrigerator. That one never happened, okay? I mean the real last Indiana Jones where he, you know, was his father and Sean Connery was in it and it was good and stuff. And so Indy has to save his father by going into, of course, a temple and looking for, of course, an archaeological artifact. And he had to pass a number of tests to get all the way so he could discover, you know, the Holy Grail, this little cup, and um, you've chosen wisely. But before he did, the last test was different than the first two. The first two, he figured out, and he Indianaed his way out of them. But the third one was this picture on a paper, and his only clue was a dude skywalking from one door to another over this chasm. And he gets to that point in the temple, and he sees the chasm, and he's in a door, and he sees the other door, but his whip ain't going to whip anything, and his fedora's not going to do a darn thing. And he's struggling, how do I figure out this one? And he's struggling, and he's struggling, and, and he can't. And then all of a sudden, in the movie, you know, to motivate him, has his dad wince in pain because he's dying. And it moves Indiana Jones to decide, I can't figure it out. I've believed everything about the legend of this temple so far. It got me here. I've seen the other two tests. I know that my father has a need. And I believe that there's something beyond this step that will fix what is my problem. And so at this point, I will take all of my knowledge and I will simply step. And it's great because that's really what faith is. It's mandatory for you to finally decide to believe. I, I have a very... Um, antagonistic father towards my faith. My dad thinks I'm an abject fool for doing what I do and believing what I believe. And so that has forced me over the years to research a decent amount of things about my faith, the reliability of the Bible, the historicity of the life of Christ, um, the, the idea that creation supports the idea of a creator. There is a lot of things I've built into logic about my faith. But at one point in my life, I decided I was all in. I really did. And I departed from knowledge into faith. And even naturalists who believe that the created world, the existing world, sorry, exists apart from a God, at one point you keep pushing them back further and further. Well, what's, what's your answer to this or this or this? Okay, they've got a lot of answers. All right, so we evolved from you know this to this, from ooze to energy. Okay, I I can even get that we you know energy evolved into matter and then matter into organized matter. That's fine, whatever. That's good. Roll back all the way to the beginning though. The energy. Where did the energy come from? Well, a naturalist would maintain that it, it's just always existed. Oh, well, you just believe that, right? You can't prove that. Well, no, we can. I I believe that's because everything is a result from it. Okay, so you've arrived at a very similar place I have. At one point, when your knowledge ends, you believe. Well, yeah. Okay, good. Well, then don't criticize me for the fact that I've arrived at a very similar place you have, that when my knowledge ends, I believe. 
And the Bible says very clearly, it's not wishy-washy. It says, if you do not believe God, you don't have God. Faith is mandatory for you to access a relationship. It says it's an assurance of things we hope for. It's a confidence of things we don't even see. But really, you got to have faith to have God. The two are inseparable. They coexist. And it's fascinating that as he steps onto the bridge, he realizes there's not a nothing. There's a very real something. It's just that he couldn't see from where he was. And actually, with every step, he grew more confident in the bridge he couldn't see, but actually existed. And so we now spill into the list of examples. It's better to understand faith by what it does than what it is. And you can write that down. People will know you have faith by what you do. You could jot that down. And we'll cover a couple of these examples in the chapter. We can't cover them all. We all got to get back and come back and get our bonus points. And so I want to read you a couple of these examples of faith, guys. In verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. You know what's cool is, uh, by the way, I don't have um, the screens in the back, if that matters to anyone. Um, What's cool is the first affirmed act of faith in human history is Abel worshiping God. And we just finished that. A room full of us, probably 12,000 people will be in this room in the next 48 hours. And we will all just worship God. It's just what we do. It's not miraculous. It's not historically important. But the Bible says that Abel's act of worship was faithful. And you ever stop and consider what Abel really was? He was the first dude to worship God who'd never seen God. Because Adam and Eve, his mom and dad, had created the largest divorce in the history of the world. Their rebellion and sin had caused God to separate himself from us because we walked away from him. And so now Abel is listening to his dad tell him things about an unseen God. First person decide that he believed his dad. Oh man, used to be great, son. Man, God put me in charge of all of this. I named all the animals. Oh, okay, dad, you came up with platypus? I don't think so. (laughs) Son, it was awesome. We would walk with God. I'm telling you, I know that we're separated from him, but son, you need to believe what I have seen. Cain didn't believe. He was just like defiant and rebellious in his spirit. It would be way easier to be very doubtful or antagonistic towards a God that would kick them out. What do you mean he kicked us out, dad? Well, son, we walked away. Abel's just the sort of dude that just believed what his dad said and believed that everything he saw came from God. And he was so impressed with the fact that God had a standard, that God was so pure that when his mother and father messed up, and if anyone in the world knew that his mom and dad were not perfect, it's always the kid. Your kids know, don't they? And Abel knew. And it makes sense to him that the story is told, son, because of our rebellion, God separated himself from our sin. Abel says that makes sense. And instead of being angry or doubtful, I'll worship. Huh. Abel is actually pretty remarkable in human history because he worshiped an unseen God. And so now your little acts of worship on a weekend, oh, it's just every day, it's commonplace. It's not a big deal. Yeah, it is. Because you've got an awful lot of people in your world who are rebellious or doubtful about who God is. And you worshiping, it's a historically important act of faith. But we've got to keep moving. 
Abel speaks loudly. The Bible says Enoch avoided death. That's interesting. You remember Enoch, right? Route 66, a long time ago. No, you don't. Let me tell you. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he didn't experience death. He couldn't be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Most of the things on the list in your notes are very normal things, aren't they? Worshiping and trusting and contentment and protecting your family. I mean, these are normal things. This one's different. And I struggled because I was like, God, this is a very cool chapter of things we can all do. And God, these are all things that demonstrate our faith. God, none of us are going to be like Enoch, though. Enoch is one of two people, at least recorded in Scripture, who never died. Even Jesus is not on that list. Jesus died. Enoch was different. He lived for a while, had some kids, lived for a while, and then just wasn't. The Old Testament says he was no more because God took him. Well, that's an interesting way to describe someone. It's because Enoch didn't die. And Enoch avoided death because of his faith. And it's like, God, I can't tell the people like, hey, be just like Enoch and never die. And God was challenging me in my own prayer time. He's like, Tim, that's what I've always told people. I told Adam and Eve, don't sin because if you sin, you'll die and I don't want death. And they did. And so I began promising life out of death instantly. That's what I promised. And so Enoch, his faith led to life. That's what I've been trying to tell people ever since they chose death. And so I I actually communicated that through the life of Noah. I preserved life in the middle of a bunch of death. Ultimately, Tim, Enoch is about Jesus because Jesus gives life over death. Jesus was raised from death so that he can give life. So Tim, speak about Enoch because the, com- the combination of faith and life in Enoch's example is exactly what we are called to share with the world around us. That my faith leads to life. That's just what I believe. Do I know? No, I don't. I never died yet. So I can't tell you, oh, I know what heaven's like. I, I don't know. But I've chosen to step out and I actually don't fear death. I fear things like who's going to care for my kids or my wife, but that's a very worldly fear. I actually don't fear death. I'm excited for what God has for me because there's an awful lot of my heart that's already been put in his hands. He can have my forever as well. Enoch is a great example. It goes on and it says Noah saved his household by just listening to God and believing. And because Noah saved his house, he saved us as well. We ain't going to talk about that. Abraham lived contentedly. Listen to this verse. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance. And by later, meaning like way after he was dead, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Almost 12 years to the day, December 27th, 12 years ago, my wife and I got in a Toyota Camry and drove from El Cajon, California to Boise, Idaho. My best friend was playing football for Boise State. Wendy's grandparents lived in Boise, road trip, first road trip of our married life. And um, we drove uh, from El Cajon up to, we got off at this um, exit called Bear Valley Road to get gas on December 27th. And uh, it was, watch this, cold and windy. (laughs) And 12 years ago, guys, Bear Valley Road, there was no Lowe's, there was no Starbucks, there's no Barnes and Noble. Some of you decadent pigs living in the desert think that Starbucks is like, always been here. No, it has not. Okay. And I got out of my car and I was pumping gas and I'm from San Diego. You know what December 27th is like in San Diego? Nice. (laughs) Okay. So I was not wearing a coat. It was awful. 
And I said, why would anyone live here? I, guys, I remember it. And God, like, giggled on his hot cocoa, pulled out his little moleskin and wrote it down. He's like, move Tim to that exit. And we lived here for three years and worked at a Christian school out in Hesperia. Loved our time here. We actually grew to love the desert, but we had our firstborn son. I wanted to be in your family. So we moved back to San Diego and God's watching us and pulls out his moleskin and opened up. He's like, no, that's not what I said. And he said, Tim, Wendy, move back. And it's been, this is our ninth year now at High Desert Church. And this is crazy, but, oh, stop. Sorry, that's not the point. No, 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 stop. That's not the point at all. The point is this, is that we've tried to leave (laughs) and we can't, (laughs) that God has called us back. And at this point, my wife is from Seattle where there is green and moisture. Neither of those things are present. I'm from San Diego, very different. Both of our hearts now are so content in the call of God that we pretty consistently tell God, you got it. You got it. And I'm sorry, and I hate to, because there are more examples of poor following in my life than good. I will readily and always admit that. But man, this one, Abraham, being told by God, hey, Abraham, I need you to move. He didn't even say where. He said, okay. And he went. That's faith. That's faith. He just lived contentedly. The Bible says he lived in tents his whole life because he was looking forward to a city whose foundation and architect, the beginning and the end of the city was God. And when God gave him a promise about something, Abraham was more happy about the promise than the something. And that's faith. He lived city happy while he lived in a tent. The tent is on borrowed land with vinyl walls. There ain't nothing happy about a tent. But Abraham's like, no, you don't understand. God spoke to me and he gave me a promise. And I'm so content with the fact that he even spoke to me. I will be city happy in my tent. And that's faith. Living contentedly based on what God has spoken over our life. My bank account is not impressive and no, it will never be. And that's fine. I don't care. Because God has spoken into my life. Guys, I'm a big dummy. And God speaks to me on a regular basis. And he does to you as well. He loves you dearly. You got to live contentedly. All right, we got to keep moving. Dog on it. Abraham lived contentedly. He gave everything. That's a cool story that the chapter refers to the sacrifice of his own son. So interesting. Okay, listen to this. Duh. Guys, the Bible records actual obedience because the Bible wants to elevate the fact that we respond to God. Very rarely does Scripture elevate our thought process and how we argue that God's going to come through. It doesn't elevate that. Chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters are response to God, not my like, explanation of God. Hebrews 11 gives a little sneak peek, DVD bonus extra making of why Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. You see it in Hebrews 11, it says, Abraham just figured that God was going to raise his son from the dead. Interesting that Abraham believed in the ability of God to resurrect before that became a popular idea. Now, that's not what God did. Instead of raising from the dead, God substituted a death, which is also... Oh, you see what the faith does? Okay. Isaac blessed his kids. That's in the chapter. Jacob left a legacy. This is fascinating to me because... Uh, let's see here. Verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. 
Tim, I don't get why that's super faithful. That's just super Old Testament-y. Old dude, blessing kids, and dying on a staff. Tim, that happens like all the time in the Old Testament. That's all it is. Blessing and dying. Well, you remember Jacob, right? He was a donkey, y'all. He was stubborn, control freak, manipulative, OCD. Like, I understand Jacob, okay? And Jacob loved to control situations. But he had this wrestling match with God, and God started to change his heart. And God says, you're not God, Jacob. I am. Just let me be, and I'll bless you. And so Jacob started to trust God. Well, along the way, he lost his son, Joseph. And when you lose your son, you lose your grandkids. And so Jacob's grandkids were raised in Egypt, which God did anyway to preserve the promise he gave to Abraham, but whatever. And uh, Joseph is reunited with Jacob after a long time. And Jacob's an old man and had lost years of control over his grandkids. And he couldn't drag them off to Christmas Eve services and read them Bible stories and give them VeggieTales DVDs. He couldn't, he couldn't pray with his grandkids at night, praying that they'd marry good God-fearing women so that a legacy of faith would move from his own grandfather to his own grandchildren. He didn't have that. Here's what he had, a moment with them late in life, and he just prayed that God would bless him. And then he leaned on his staff and died. And he was just as content with the ability for God to give influence over his grandkids, and he traded his own. It's a cool act of faith for someone who's a control freak. It's pretty neat. He just prayed for his grandkids. We can't live a life of faith, though. We can't do these Bible things. That's too hard. Joseph made plans. He asked for his bones to be moved because he knew that the promise of God would be fulfilled. And, oh, that's a cool story. Moses simply lived. Listen to this, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they weren't afraid of the king's edict. Everyone thinks their baby's not an ordinary child. Everyone thinks their baby's magical and like, oh, he's the best baby ever. Your babies all look the same as mine did. Funky when they're born, okay? And his parents believed that God had something for their son. And you got to remember that the edict, the rule of the land was the Egyptians needed all the Hebrew boys to be done away with. No Hebrew boys. You're going to outnumber us and you're going to rise up against us. We're not the world's first superpower for nothing. We're smart. And so get rid of the Hebrew boys. And the parents hear the call of the law of the land. And they just believe something about God and their boy. And they just, they just protected his life. And thank God they did. Because Moses was able to lead God's people out of captivity. And establish them so that God's son would be born where he needed to be born so that God's son could die, so that we could live. Thank you, Moses. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Abraham, for doing these simple little things of trusting and protecting and following and being content and letting life happen. This is a list we can do, y'all. And this is a list of things. The list goes on. I wasn't going to read it, but... Verses 29, 30, and 31, named Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And here's a list of verbs it gives us. They conquered, they ruled, they gained, they shut, they quenched, escaped, transformed, raised, received, tortured, mocked, flogged, imprisoned, killed, and wandered. Write this last idea down. Faith will move you to things you can't do or to things you won't do on your own. 
Faith goes beyond. It takes into account knowledge and logic and understanding, and then it goes beyond. And it achieves things that a wonderful Christmas Eve service can't. We need our church to be faithful, not attractive. And we need you to respond to one of those things that God has called you to in your life that you're probably aware of, that your heart struggles with and you don't want to because you're not sure why God has it or what will happen if if you listen to him about it. I don't know either. The Bible says you got to be confident in the things that you hope for and you need to be just as sure about the things you can't see as the things you can. And faith is an evidence that will allow our world to watch us and see in us a God that they'll never see in this world, but they'll see you every day. Give them something to notice. Let's pray. Father, we want to live faithfully, and we think about the heroes of faith in the Bible, and we think about winning battles or being kings or saying things about the future, these big things that we could never do. But God, this chapter is a bunch of normal things. It's giving and worshiping. It's protecting. It's being content. And God, I can do all of those things. And so God, I pray that you would grow in us a conviction to step this week into something that we need to believe you for that we would step into forgiving someone in our world or giving to someone or something. God, these things in our own culture that we struggle with, God, help us to stop watching the thing and to start trusting the you. And God, I pray that you would call HTC to be a faithful church, not just an attractive church. Because God, our world doesn't need us to be attractive. It needs us to be faithful because they need you. God, grow us and call us now to carry you into the world around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.